Hello, Art History Babes listeners. You are about to listen to a very special conversation I recently had with Aliza Kelly. I really have so many good things to say about this conversation. We talk art history, astrology, working in the art world, the importance of visual literacy, and you best believe we do some breakdown of our natal charts. But before all of that, a couple of quick announcements. The Art History Babes are going to be in New York City and we want you to come with us. Registration for our winter New York City trip is now up and available and we are currently running a $100 discount for anyone that registers before September 30th. So if you've been wanting to grab a spot, now is the time to do it. Head to likemindstravel.com and we'll have a link in the show notes for you. Also, currently running a mini back-to-school series on the Art History Babes YouTube channel covering information like how to write a research paper, how to study for art history exams, etc., etc. So be sure to check that out. And finally, we are in spooky season mode here at the Art History Babes. Not only will we be running mad spooky season content for the next month and a half, but we have limited edition Art Witch merchandise. So head to arthistorybabes.com slash merchandise and get yours today. Now, please enjoy this conversation with student of art history and professional astrologer, Aliza Kelly. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Aliza Kelly. Hi, Aliza. Hello. <laughs> today, uh, we're going to chat a bit about a topic that is very close to my heart, astrology. But first, Aliza, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am an astrologer. I am the host of a podcast called Stars Like Us. I am the resident astrologer at Cosmopolitan Magazine. I have written two books, but before all of that, I was an art history major. And then I actually worked in the art world for five years before becoming an astrologer. So art uh, is such an integral part of my practice still, and art history as well. I actually was just at an alumni event for my college in the art history department. And I was a little worried about like coming out to all of my very stuffy art history professors as an astrologer. And and, like I, with good reason, like they looked at me like I had three heads when I said that, but then I recovered by being like, but Hey, you know what? I think I probably use art history more than most of my peers do on a day-to-day basis. So booyah. (laughs) I I think I said booyah. (laughs) So yes, it's really cool because I I actually really do get to work with art history all of the time. And I get to think about some of my favorite topics, sometimes even more than I did when I was working in galleries. So yeah, that's that's sort of the very quick elevator pitch of who I am. That is amazing. I love hearing that so much. (laughs) Like, Like as someone who also, you know, went to school for art history and is kind of trying to do something a little outside the box that I don't know how some of my uh, past art history professors would like feel about it. Like I love seeing that your study of art history and your experience in the art world is now informing something so different because it just speaks to the fact that like art is a part of everything, you know? Yes, definitely. Art is totally a part of everything, but especially when you're dealing with astrology content and mythology and the Greco-Roman favorites, mm-hmm. art really is a part of everything. Definitely. So could you like expand on that a little bit? Maybe some specific examples of ways you've worked with art history in your astrology practice? Sure. Yeah. I mean, So when I was studying, I sort of ended up focusing on contemporary 20th century art and architecture. But in order to get there, I spent a lot of time working with classical antiquity and then also in Renaissance art. And I studied abroad, like so many of us art history people do in Rome, Mm -hmm. and (laughs) had just the most amazing magical time there. I was 19. It was sexy. There was wine. I could drink legally. Fabulous. But I was also <laughs> I was also around all of this amazing art all of the time. And, you know, Renaissance art is all classical revival. And all classical revival is 
talking about the gods and goddesses. And the gods and goddesses are familiar names like Mercury, Venus, Mars, Neptune, (laughs) Pluto, all of these familiar archetypes that I work now with in astrology on a day-to-day basis. So a lot of the information and the way that I think of these archetypes, the way that I sort of visualize these energies is rooted in the studies that I was focusing on through a lot of my undergrad and in really understanding from this pictorial perspective, how are these energies conveyed? What are the different, uh, you know, how are people utilizing and working with either these images or these statues? You know, what are they doing on a societal level? And then that helps me when I'm looking at somebody's birth chart. And then when I'm talking about these different abstract planets that we are personifying as these gods and goddesses have a different dimension and insight into who they are. I love it so much. I actually just learned recently, kind of speaking to how you talked about Renaissance art and how Renaissance art is classical revival. I recently learned that apparently um, Da Vinci's The Last Supper can be read as like a representation of the Zodiac. Do you know anything about that? No, I do not. And that is fucking amazing. (laughs) That is incredible. Right? Because like it's been read as like the 12 apostles as like the 12 Zodiac signs. And yeah, I haven't gone too deep into it yet, but I learned that and I got really excited. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm here for that. Like 12 is such an important and magical and profound number, you know, I I have also done some research on the number 13. So I guess here's another extension of my art history is that I now continue to get to like research and study and learn about all of these sort of esoteric concepts. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is through looking at the art of, of any given culture and time. So I was doing some research on why number 13 is unlucky and why there's so much uh, superstition surrounding it. And a lot of it is attributed to the fact that 12 is such a cool number and 12 is so magical and it's so divisible. And we have, you know, there's 12 times that what it's the clock is divided into 12. We had Mm -hmm. 12 people sitting around the last supper. There are 12 apostles, like we 12 Zodiac signs. There's a lot of synchronicity with that. And then number 13 comes and it's just like not as good. (laughs) 13 is unlucky in relation to 12 being so magical. That's so interesting. I I somehow have never really thought about the number 12, which is crazy because my birthday is the 12th. Oh, yeah. And I really like astrology. So I don't know why I've never like taken a step back and been like, 12 is where it's at but that's really interesting like I yeah and then 13 kind of comes in and just messes everything up like (laughs) exactly exactly and so like 13 after you know oh it's like you don't want to follow the act of 12 that's like a tough act yeah it's like 12 is so perfect and beautiful (laughs) oh my goodness super interesting so I definitely want to go you know a bit deeper into art history and astrology. But first, can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to astrology and how you came to be a professional astrologer? Yeah. So I um, I graduated college in 2011 and uh, I had written my thesis on Mary Boone and Julian Schnabel and the art world boom of the 1980s. And I was like, I'm going to be Mary Boone. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad I'm not since she's now in jail. But (laughs) at at the time, (laughs) I was like, I want to have a really cutting edge gallery. And I want to work with interesting contemporary artists who are really innovating and making fascinating art that challenges and questions things. And and that's also expensive. And, you know, I want to live go to Miami all the time and travel, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I had all of these big aspirations, some of them more ego driven than others. <laughs> and I ended up not being able to get a job in the art world because it was only internships, as mm-hmm. I'm sure has been probably discussed on your podcast. Yep. <laughs> and, and I had to take a job at as like a, an assistant at a hedge fund. But I was young and naive. And I thought that with my $45,000 annual salary that I was rich, So I decided to open a gallery in Bushwick. So I opened an art gallery in Bushwick called Outlet. 
And in the day I was working as an assistant and at night I was, what night and weekends I was running this art gallery. And at that time, Bushwick in Brooklyn was not like what it is now. It was still definitely a lot more sparse in terms of what was, uh, you know, what galleries were there, if there even was an art presence at all. Now it actually has a lot of different art galleries there. But I was working on that for about a year and a half. And then finally, like a dream come true, I had been applying to different director positions at different galleries uh, in New York and Los Angeles. And I got had an interview with a gallery in LA called Ace Gallery for a director position. And I got the job. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I quit my job as the hedge fund started preparing to move to Los Angeles. And as I am in the process of moving, you know, I'm researching the gallery where I'm going to work and I'm seeing all of these like very troubling things on the internet about Ponzi schemes and like illegal practices. And there is this whole long, long essay in LA Confidential about how the owner of the gallery is a fraud. And I was like, okay, well, (laughs) it was written in 2004. So I guess it's old. You know, obviously, my intuition was firing off at this time being like, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. But needless to say, I had already been planning on moving. I was super excited. So I moved, I got there, everything that I had read was right. It was a Ponzi scheme gallery. The owner and director was a monster. He had illegal practices going on. He wanted me to do illegal things. He was laundering money. He was stealing art, like just the worst, like so blatant, like not even like there was a Banksy that somebody had, or I guess Banksy himself had like done graffiti on whatever, some concrete wall outside as he does. And people were talking about how that had just happened. And the next thing I know, preparators are coming into the gallery with a chunk of wall. And they had drilled out this image on this wall. Uh. So like really bad (laughs) shit. So I moved, I uprooted my whole life and I left. I quit and I was now in LA and I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know anybody. I was really floundering. It took me a while, but I found again a job at a very great contemporary gallery at the time. It was called Oh Wow. It's now changed its name a few times and it's called Moran Moran now. But I finally was like, okay, cool. I've landed the job that I want. I'm settled. But I still wasn't happy and I still was feeling really antsy and I still was feeling like every, like I wasn't doing what I needed to be doing. And I had, you know, I was also like very disenchanted from all of these experiences that I had had at this point. Yeah, for sure. So a friend and I started talking about how we were pissed at life and our jobs and we were single and everything sucks. And we were like, why isn't there a dating app based on astrology? That just is a no brainer. So we decided to start exploring that a little bit more. And at that point, because I had been selling art for, I guess, like two years plus at that point, I had developed a bit of a client base. So I was able to start reaching out to some of my clients and say, hey, I have this idea. Is, is this something that you would be interested in investing in? And a lot of them said yes. So we raised enough money through our individual networks to be able to launch an astrology dating app called The Line. That started in 2014. And as we were working on that, obviously, I was you know, I was already interested in astrology. I've always been interested in astrology, but I started to immerse myself more and more with the content and the language and the philosophies. And I started to become less interested in the business aspect of it and going to investors and trying to raise from venture capitals and whatever, doing the whole startup circuit and more interested in just working with people working with astrology content, writing about it, thinking about it. And I didn't know then, but now that I'm reflecting on it, I realized that that was really the extension of what I loved about being an art history student was learning and studying and creating and finding those patterns and finding those synchronicities and, you know, like looking at these charts, which is such a visual process and really is akin to how one looks at a painting or a piece of work and goes around it and makes these observations and 
form follows function, right? So everything exists for a reason. So we ran a line till 2016. We closed a line in 2016. Trump won in 2016. Uh, and then I, at that point, 2016 was a hard year. It was like. a crazy, crazy year. So we closed the company in 2016 in August. I moved back to New York in August. Trump won in November. And then I basically became an astrologer. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Oh, I like, I totally understand that. Like after, yeah, after 2016, my entire worldview shattered and everything I thought I wanted became very different very quickly. Uh (laughs) Yes, yes. So it's been a journey. It's been sort of an interesting road. I would say that the common thread through all of my professional experiences have been has been weird, has been unusual and sort of, you know, I've never worked at a company that has had like an HR department, you know, like I've Mm -hmm. never, (laughs) I've never been at a corporate office and had to work with peers and colleagues in like a normal way that a lot of people my age do. Sometimes I feel like I've kind of missed out on that experience. But I also think that the spirit of who I am would not be able to handle it. Yeah, for sure. I yeah, I totally get that. Like, I know everything you kind of said with your your journey, like I can definitely identify with a lot of it because once we graduated grad school, which we graduated June of 2017. So basically, we were like writing our master's theses like right after Trump got elected. Mm. So that was And then like after we graduated, you know, jumping into like, okay, I need to find a job and everything. Yeah, my like ego was telling me that I put all this work into getting a master's degree in art history. I put all this money. I'm in all this debt to get a master's degree in art history. Like I need to get a job that is like at a gallery or I need to keep going in academia. Like those are the paths I have to follow. And every time I would go to like apply for a job, I mean, applying for jobs always sucks. Like no matter who you are, it's it's never fun. But like, it was like an intuition thing that was like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want this job. Obviously, like if you're applying to something with that kind of energy, you're not going to get the job either. Like, it's (laughs) it's just bad all around. But like it was, it was like an intuitive, I don't want to work at a gallery. Like, honestly, I've never been super interested in working in gallery work. I thought I was going to go the academia route, but after grad school, I was kind of turned off from that. And even though I had no money and there wasn't a really like there wasn't much practicality to it, but my intuition was like, you should try and just keep building this podcast and build your own platform that will allow you to do exactly what you were saying that will allow you to continue to learn and explore and like you won't be hindered by academic requirements and expectations. And and yeah, it, it definitely hasn't been easy in any way but like it also was 100% the best decision you know so like I totally relate to that idea of like some days especially because like we're still working on building the business and stuff like some days I'm like Corey just like get a normal job like you have a master's degree (laughs) like just like go get an office job it'll be fine but there's there's something that's so freeing about being able to be creative and like use what I loved about studying art history in a way that's like building something new. Yes. I mean, I, I have to say that the irony is, is that I spent from 2011 to 2013, early 2014. So for quite a number of years, I spent trying to work at a cool contemporary art gallery that represented interesting, cutting-edge people and that was in the zeitgeist and that was making these contributions to the art world. And I finally got there and I was unhappy. Mm-hmm. And I also found that, you know, in building and I was traveling around the world, but I was broke as fuck because you still get paid shit even when you are working as an art dealer making commissions. It's Mm -hmm. still not a sustainable way of living. And chasing rich people 
to get them to buy art felt it was so soul crushing. Yeah. And the more information that I would share to these clients, and some of them were well informed, a lot of them weren't, especially I was in Los Angeles. So the entertainment industry still had a big hold over the art world there. So it was very much of like, oh, did you know that Leonardo DiCaprio just bought this Tory Thornton? You know, it was like, it was still being sort of guided by Hollywood. And the more information that I would share from an art historical place, the more that I would see people's eyes glaze over and I wouldn't make a sale. But if I was like, did you know that Jonah Hill just purchased three of these? People were like, you know, money out, dicks out, like ready to go. I hate that so much. (laughs) I do too. And, you know, I felt like, what am I doing? I might as well be selling like exotic cars. Yeah. You know, I like this is not art history. Yeah. 100%. Like, oh my God. Like, yeah, no, no hate for Jonah Hill, but like that. (laughs) He has great taste in art. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Only love for Jonah Hill, but like, like who the fuck cares what Jonah Hill likes? Like, what do you like? Like, what do you care about? You know? (sighs) Yeah. The, the, the idea of, art as status symbol is like the most infuriating thing to me. Art is so fundamentally human and I want people to be into art. And I, of course I want people buying art. Like that's so important, but buy what speaks to you, buy what you're interested in. The way the art market operates right now is it definitely is so much of that like status kind of thing where it's like it makes you question if any of these collectors even care about art at all you know (laughs) like it's such a weird thing yes so in my senior year of college I I wrote my thesis on as I had mentioned Mary Boone and Julian Schnabel and the art market in the 80s and I can't remember what pretentious title I gave my thesis at this point oh I think it was like neoclassical something or other. But basically the link that I was trying to make was that Julian Schnabel and his contemporaries were incorporating all of these classical iconography into their work. You know, like they he redid the Caravaggio painting of Bacchus and he would always have these like Rococo and Renaissance illusions. And I was basically trying to create this link between him using these icons of luxury and then making his work more expensive because he was creating all of these illusions back to classical antiquity and the Renaissance and things that are sort of canonical for being opulent. Um, And Mm -hmm. I do feel like, you know, at that time in the 80s, like that's when the art world really became this commodified thing that it is now where people were 100% yeah you know the auctions became a big deal and it wasn't just you know it, it did open up it did become more accessible so you didn't only have to be from like a royal family to have an art collection I, I think it's very well depicted in American Psycho where it's like you went to somebody's like Wall Street loft and they were like oh like look at this new piece that I have that is contemporary and then you'd go out and party and do a bunch of cocaine (laughs) yeah and it and I do think that at that time that was really when we also saw that art was not being really treated as this intellectual thoughtful you know if you weren't buying art because you were thinking about what the artist was trying to say Mm -hmm. you were buying art because as you're saying it was a status symbol even though there's definitely, you know, that's not the only way that people buy art. I would say that at certain tiers, at certain price points, at certain galleries, it's the primary way that people buy art. Yeah. And it's, it's, it definitely is soul crushing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I worked in food service for a long time and I like working with people and stuff, but my least favorite thing was like trying to sell them things. And the idea of like, selling people art always felt kind of soul crushing just to me personally because I just don't like selling people things not that you know like some people are amazing at sales you know no shame on that but like for me the idea of of selling people something that yeah just feels so personal and so real to me like I I just couldn't even like wrap my head around it so I I can imagine why you you would struggle in that situation (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, especially because something that I've always been fascinated by is like symbolism. Mm -hmm. I feel very blessed that I get to work with symbols and iconography all the time now on a day-to-day basis. But when I was younger, I used to be obsessed with picture puzzles where it was like, what is the thing that doesn't belong here? Or like compare two pictures to see what thing was taken out. Mm -hmm. And all of that was like training of looking, right? That was like training the eye to be more perceptive to why things are positioned in a certain way and why this choice was to use this color instead of that color and, you know, the juxtaposition of different things and, and then contrapposto. And then we have like tenebrism, right? Like all of these, like, like you put words around them, but they're all just these concepts of like, why did you make that choice? Mm -hmm. And when I would talk to clients and it was like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> I, they, there wasn't even this awareness that there were choices being made. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the artists that we were working with were phenomenal. And they were be- very aware and very conscious of all of these decisions. You know, art and art making is a very active process. You're always choosing to do or to not do something. And there's a reason why you're choosing or, or choosing not to do something. And I think that that really informs why art is magical and special and that the artist is in such an elevated position to be creating Mm -hmm. stuff that really deserves to have that kind of conversation. Yeah, totally. I mean, visual intelligence is a huge thing. And yeah, and the more time you spend with visual material, like the better you get at it. I actually took like a intelligence test fairly recently that measured the main different types of intelligence on like the other ones I got like, I don't know, in like the middle range, 50th percentile type thing. But in the visual intelligence test, I got in like the 98th percentile. And it's it reaffirmed to me that spending all this time looking at images and thinking about images, like it actually changes your brain. It grows a certain type of intelligence and that that is incredibly valuable because that exactly like that informs how you look at the world. That informs what you see when you go for a walk through a park. Like that informs what you see when you look at your social media feed. Like it informs everything that you look at. And the idea that people just aren't taking the time to see is like a a bummer because it's such a it's just such a beautiful thing <laughs> yeah I mean I do think that there is that's I think that creating that correlation is important because you know when we think about social media so personal anecdote I dated this horrible guy a few years ago and he I'm I'm really trying to set us up for this because he was disgusting this is a disgusting <laughs> thing I'm about to say but he was I was like looking over his shoulder on was he was scrolling on Instagram and he literally was following like strippers and porn stars and, and not the, you know, fun, classy burlesque versions of these, right? Like just like Mm -hmm. very super graphic pictures and like twerking videos and just like kind of like the worst thing you would ever want to look over at your boyfriend's phone and see. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was also on top of this, he was dumb. So he's a really a great catch of a person. So I was like, whoa, I was like, do you realize how problematic it is that you are sandwiching pictures of me? I just posted a picture of my little sister. And I was like, my your, my little sister is sandwiched between like ass videos. Like that is informing your consciousness. Like mm-hmm. that's really problematic because it's putting everything on this same plane. When we're scrolling on Instagram, everything, we're processing everything in the same area of our consciousness. And this is it's a real issue, you know, like this yeah. is that you are there. There's no separation between these things. And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like <laughs> you're being so emotional or whatever it was. Like <laughs> obviously, this relationship went nowhere, but it was an interesting thing to, you know, start thinking about then. And I continue to still think about it now as to how we take in all this visual stimuli. And I feel very grateful that I studied images so that I have an ability to process them. You know, I feel equipped to understand how advertising works. Mm -hmm. And I feel equipped to understand how, you know, compositions work on an artistic level. 
but I don't think that most people are aware of of how much we are absorbing on a conscious and subconscious basis and how it is informing our psyche because the images that we are taking in do really make an impact and and they show will show up in our dreams and they'll show up in the way that we sort of regurgitate information, tell stories, obviously in the things that we buy and the way that we consume culture and our expectations for self, but without really understanding how powerful and potent images are, you're kind of, I don't know, it's like you're you're really working against a lot here in, in today's society. Totally. Whenever I have that conversation with someone and they ask me like, so why did you study art history? One of my go-to answers is that like, we're living in an increasingly visual culture. Like, you know, everyone is, yeah, scrolling through feeds and taking in so much visual information all the time and not thinking anything about it. And I think the advertising example is is totally on point. So many people don't understand how they're being sold the things they're being sold. And like, that is a problem. And just stuff like when you think about, you know, you think about the fact that essentially like Facebook got like Trump elected. Right. And you right, think, right, you're, right. you know, I've seen plenty of the the types of things, the types of political images or memes or whatever that people share to spread harmful ideas and like harmful but also just blatantly false information and like I can pick out of a lineup an image that is sharing something that is false like so easily this is not real you know but so many people can't or haven't learned to yet and yeah it's a huge problem when we are living in a culture that is looking through their Facebook Instagram feeds all the time without the ability to, yeah, differentiate between um, what is actually going on in these images and like with these words. Yeah. I mean, visual literacy is so important now. I remember, I think it might've even been in high school. I had this like very progressive liberal teacher who was like, look at how all of these alcohol ads have the alcohol bottle positioned in this phallic way. You know, like, look how it's always like, a guy is always holding it at his crotch and Mm -hmm. there's always like women fawning over this alcohol bottle. Like it's his penis, you know, like, which is obviously not real life (laughs) (laughs) is the marketing of it. You know, it's the ad campaign. And until very recently, and I would say still probably the majority of alcohol ads are targeted towards men. And that was a big part of what for decades, you know, how, people, why people were buying alcohol is because they thought they were going to get laid. If they drank, it was going to improve their libidos. Mm -hmm. It was going to make people more attracted to them. I still probably why a lot of people drink, you know? So, but I remember sort of becoming aware of the positioning of these campaigns and how it was all with intention. There's intention behind everything, everything. Mm -hmm. Nothing is haphazard, you know, even if something looks haphazard and it looks like, you know, I'm looking out the window in New York City right now and I see some real shit architecture, but, you know, someone still designed it. It might not be that they were, they were a good designer and they were a thoughtful architect. They had a shit budget probably, but there's still thought that goes into every single thing that exists in the world. Totally. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I guess it, it just all comes down to like looking and whether you want to take the time to see the intention behind something or not. Does that make sense? Definitely. I, I had this amazing friend when I had studied abroad and she was an architecture student and we came back to New York and, you know, continued our friendship here. And in Rome, it was like easy to be like, oh my God, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Right. Mm-hmm. That's all you do. And then in New York, I'm a native New Yorker. So, you know, I grew up here and I've seen it all. Right. But my friend, when she came and moved back and we started spending time here, she kept doing that. And she kept being like, oh my God, look at that. Look at that. Look up. You know, look, look at that. Uh, look at that amazing piano noble over there. Like all of this. Right. And it made me realize how much I was had not been aware 
of my surroundings mm-hmm. and in my environment. And mm-hmm. when you go to another place, to a, a city that is obviously known for its history and its architecture, you're in the mode of being aware. You're in the mode of looking up and taking it all in and stumbling upon something magical. But in your day-to-day life, it's easy to forget that and not take things in and mm-hmm. not look up and, and become sort of just rote. And that is a shit way of living. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing to be aware and to be conscious and to see and question and ask why were these choices made? I love architecture. So I always am looking at buildings and in New York, I have a lot to choose from. And I think when was this made? What style is this in? Did they have a big, a big budget to work with? Does it look like something that was rushed? Does it look like some, who was it made for? You know, there's decades of interesting stories here. Every building has a story. Every piece of art has a story. And it's not only in New York that you can do this. I also practice this now wherever I go. So even if I'm in towns that are just dominated by strip malls, you know, strip malls Mm -hmm. are still a piece of architecture. They came from a certain time. They're emulating a certain concept and there's lots of different types of malls that are created. You know, you have your yeah. your outdoor malls, you have your Grove in Los Angeles, you have your classic sort of auto-based mall. Like all of these things are, are interesting to me. And I do feel very lucky that I guess I get to just like think all the time. Right. And I do attribute that to art history. So I I love art history. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally feel you. Like, so I, I grew up in the Midwest. I'm from Iowa originally. And so I have like a huge love for just like small, weird towns. Yes, totally. All over the country. I love stopping in just the tiniest town and like walking around and just like finding the weirdest things that can stick out to you, whether it's like an old dilapidated like sign or like a rundown barn or just, you know, like or or the way a certain farmhouse looks against the sky. Like if nothing else, I think art history has just taught me that beauty is everywhere and you just have to kind of look for it and and like you said like if you're not actively doing that you're kind of missing out on a certain magic with life i i feel like people one way to incorporate these practices into their daily life is through astrology and uh, i think that astrology is actually a very one-to-one of this because when you see yourself in depicted in this amazing visual form of all of the planets and the celestial bodies and the these sort of magical, spiritual, abstract, very abstract, because even though they are real, we can't see most of them. So we have to just trust that they're there. Mm-hmm. When you imagine your world sort of through that lens, it's much easier to sparse out, you know, your this is my dynamic with myself. This is my dynamic with how I want people to perceive me. This is my relationship with my mother. This is my trauma. This is my fear. This is what I'm really good at. And I think that astrology gives people all of the tools to live this more conscious life on a spiritual level. And I guess this is a very roundabout way of even just, it's interesting to approach astrology through this conversation because I I think that I innately do, but I don't usually talk about it. And then I find myself sort of trying to explain like, no, astrology isn't prescriptive. And it's not, you know, it's not like you are putting yourself in a box and you only can have these attributes based on your sun sign. Like that is a stereotype and a misconception of what astrology is. What astrology is, is a way of seeing the world and a way of seeing yourself and interacting with all of these different moving parts. So I feel like any tool to become more conscious and to become more self-aware and also externally aware is amazing. Do you feel like there are other ways that one could do that? (laughs) I, yeah, like, I don't know. I have a huge smile on my face just like listening to you talk about it like that because (laughs) I definitely feel like personally my attraction to astrology is is yeah it's it's very much related to my attraction to art history and I really like hearing 
you talk about it as, yeah, something that isn't about putting people in boxes. Because unfortunately, as much as I love that astrology is like mainstream, and as much as I love a good astrology meme, like do not get me wrong, I do feel like a lot of people are just kind of taking it as like, oh, this is this is my sun sign or my moon sign. And, and it, it means this thing about me. And so I'm this and kind of using it to create boxes or to to create distinctions and not really seeing the whole picture of like, well, yeah, but we all have a huge chart that like incorporates every planet and every sign in some way. And like it really more than anything is a tool for, yeah, for looking inward. Exactly. Like relating it back to the practice of just like seeing and art history and looking at things is like, we all have our own consciousness and our own brain that's wired a certain way. And when I look at a painting, I'm going to see certain things and I'm going to notice certain things because of my reality. And when you look at that same painting, you might see something else and notice something else. And that's really cool because then we can have an interesting conversation that reflects how we actually feel and see the world. And likewise, I think, yeah, I think astrology is, is the same thing. Like you learn about yeah, what it means to have your sun in a certain sign or your mercury in a certain sign. And you're going to identify with certain aspects of that. And then some you might not, but it helps you like look inward and understand a little bit about yourself, about your history, about why maybe you've done certain things and, and yeah, and your reality. Like it, it really is just a tool for exploring your personal reality, in my opinion. Totally. Yes, I completely agree. I completely, completely agree. You know, something I always say to people, you know, especially if I'm like, I just hosted a workshop last night, I I host these live digital workshops. And it's amazing because we can have hundreds of people from all around the world connecting, you know, like on the same stream of consciousness, learning and growing. And I get emotional just thinking about it. It It's just the most amazing thing to me. But every now and then when in this chat room, someone will be like, I don't, I don't, that doesn't hit home. Like, I don't identify with that. And I, my response is like, then forget it. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. Exactly. <laughs> if, that doesn't, if that doesn't apply, don't worry about it. Take what you want from this that's going to inform your life that does connect where you do connect the dots and things are become illuminated and throw out anything that doesn't work. You don't have to, not everything needs to just slot right in perfectly. Of course, it's not going to. There's going to be certain things where you're like, no, that doesn't apply to my situation, my circumstance, obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, goes without saying. But I think that, you know, it's it's very common with astrology to think like this has to be a one-to-one all the time. But no, astrology also requires your participation. You know, it requires you to also be interpretive with yourself and think, okay, I'm reading something or I'm listening to someone say something. How can I apply this to my own condition and my own state of being? Because obviously these these are archetypes, right? These are like qualities that we're talking about on this macro level. To make it personal, you need to do that step for yourself to say, okay, this is what I'm faced with. These are my conditions and and yes, I will can make this work or no, that doesn't quite apply. Fine, moving on. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and that's, I think, just a great tool for life, like not even just astrology, just being able to to move through the world and not take everything as absolute fact or take everything absolutely personally you know like you have to take what works and you have to brush off what doesn't because like because as someone who internalizes a lot of my surroundings like I've, I've just always been super sensitive and like I, I I internalize a lot all the time like you just what's your sign what is your chart profile I, oh, I feel yay. I, can't, I can't stand this anymore yay. I was hoping we'd get into this okay I'll tell you as much as I can remember off the top of my head uh so I'm a Scorpio sun great Capricorn moon great Leo rising <laughs> oh cool um uh, Libra Venus me too oh nice Aries Mars cool and what's your Mercury? My Mercury Scorpio. Okay, cool. My Mercury Scorpio, and then my North Node is Pisces. 
Ooh, okay. So we have you, your Scorpio sun, Capricorn moon, Leo rising, Scorpio Mercury, Libra Venus, Aries Mars, and then south node Virgo, north node Pisces. Yep. Cool. So lots of good, lots of good challenges and tension <laughs> points in your chart. I, you know, I, I have, we actually have sort of some similar stuff. I have Capricorn and Leo in my chart as well. I am Capricorn rising with the Leo sun. The Scorpio of your sun is cool because what it's doing is it's basically creating this push and pull with your rising being like, I want to be comfortable. Um, I want to feel like I can trust my environment, but I also want to be seen. I want to be recognized. I want to build a legacy for myself. I want more than what I came into this world with. And those are, you know, that's ultimately the tension that makes shit happen. That is the stuff that allows for challenges and trials and tribulations that then get things done and get you out of your comfort zone and into the places that you need to be going. So I see tension and hard aspects, Scorpio and Leo create a square as very positive things because we need to have push and pull in order to create friction and friction is ultimately what makes fire, what makes things moving, what gets us motivated. So I think you have a beautiful, lovely, complex, complicated, hard chart. (laughs) I love that so much. I'm like tearing up almost. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely, yeah, all of that reads true. And it's it's something I I bring up to people because, um, so I naturally on a day-to-day basis, am actually like very quote unquote introverted in the sense that like I love my alone time I love being cozy and like I I just love doing my own thing but people always read me as very extroverted and I'm like yeah because I'm a Leo rising so I'm like kind of in your face sometimes (laughs) talking about it like that reminds me of this conversation I I had with my boyfriend recently where he was um I don't know, we were just like talking about things. And I asked him what his favorite like mood was. And he said, calm. And I was like, well, I'm surprised you, you know, love me as much as you do, because I definitely would not describe myself as calm. And he was like, he was like, yeah, you're wild, but you're cozy. It works out. (laughs) And I was like, that's like my favorite thing anyone's ever said to me, because that's exactly how I feel. Like I feel very intense and I feel yeah, like I, I desire a lot out of life, but being like Scorpio and Capricorn dominant, like I also just like want to feel safe and cozy and like, like to be at home. And, but at the same time, the fact that I have this like desire to challenge that all the time is like why I've done shit with my life, you know? Totally, totally. And why you're going to continue to do shit with your life. Yeah. Is that it's not, you're not, you know, as soon as you start to feel too cozy, you're like, but wait, this isn't big enough. This isn't important enough. Exactly. Like that's, that's a, um, a repeating pattern in my life. It's like I go in cozy mode where I just disappear for the, from the world. And then I'm like, okay, time's up. Let's go like try and accomplish some shit. Let's like go after some goals. Let's like get into the world. And it's just like a constant cycle of that, which, you know, like being like Scorpio dominant and stuff like that's, I I think a really nice visual representation of transformation, which is like what Scorpios are all about. Like it's, it's kind of a cyclical process of like going in and coming back out and going in and coming back out in order to like move forward. Totally. Yeah. I, I love to think of Scorpio as the soil. It's, you know, it's on this axis of Taurus. Taurus is the spring. Taurus is when everything is in bloom and we have these, you know, gorgeous flowers and foliage. And then Scorpio is the soil that all of the roots are embedded in. So in order for us to have the beautiful flowers that is Taurus, we need to have the soil be nutritious and rich and fertile and strong. So all of this stuff within needs to needs to be able to support your own development and growth on an external level. So the internal process is such a 
Sorry for the siren. I've no, I don't know if you can hear it, but I'm sure you fucking can. It's so New York. It's so New York. <laughs> I, I'm eating a bagel with a pizza and a coffee and there's a siren. <laughs> but the the soil is fundamentally like, you know, it's, it's everything. Everything that can grow needs to be coming from a place that is supportive. And that is how I imagine Scorpio. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Man, I'm feeling I'm feeling good right now. <laughs> Definitely before we kind of wrap things up, can you do you mind telling us a little bit about your chart? Oh yeah, sure. Um I am a Leo sun with a Capricorn rising and a Pisces moon. The sort of main takeaways from my chart are that I have a massive eighth house stellium with many, many, many planets and asteroids all embedded in the area of the chart connected to death, sex, and transformation. I also have Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune on my ascendant in Capricorn. So there is a lot of stuff that when I first started to read about astrology and the houses and different configurations, I was that really scared the shit out of me because they're very intense, very emotional, very painful placements. And there's a lot of literature on them, especially from years ago. That was when I was, you know, a few years ago, there wasn't as much as there is now. And it was scary. Mm -hmm. You know, it really freaked me out. And I then I practiced leaving behind what doesn't apply and taking what does. And then came to realize that, yes, it's scary and it's intense, but it also is actually my life. Mm -hmm. It is what I've had to deal with. I've had to deal with a lot of eighth house things throughout my life. I've had to deal with a lot of 12th house things throughout my life. And that is a one-to-one depiction of what my experience on this planet has been. So instead of being scared of being like, oh my God, these are, this is so intense. This is so dark. This is so psychologically troubled. I was like, no, this actually checks out and makes me feel validated and makes me feel you know, like I can claim and be accountable to myself and to my story and I can grow with it. So the more that I sort of leaned into the things that were challenging and difficult about my chart, the more I realized that they were my strengths and it was those complexities that made me beautiful. And it was, it has been sort of the, the tough shit of my life that has also given me the perspective to be able to then help other people go through their tough shit in their life. Yeah. So you know, it's astrology has only ever been illuminating for me. There's never been a an experience that I've had with astrology where I've left and have felt bad. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think that that also, you know, that's what in my practice, what I really try to emphasize is that this is a language that should be empowering for you. This is a language that you should use to help um, define the unexplained and to help make sense of all of the things that you had to deal with. And it was definitely my chart and working with my chart that enabled me to do that. Yeah, I, I love that. Like, that's very, very similar, I think, to what my attraction to astrology has also like been like is it just, yeah, it just helps you understand some of the things you've gone through or or what it is that you kind of have to offer the world, which can be a really difficult thing to like figure out and like step into. And astrology has definitely helped me with that. So yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I think it can be a very empowering thing. I, I understand why people sometimes struggle with it and are skeptical of it. Like sometimes on the podcast, when like on certain episodes, we'll be talking about a certain artist and I'll bring up like information about their birth chart. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. Um, and we'll get we'll get people that are like, I love that you do that. I love that you like incorporate things about astrology into talking about these artists. And then, and then we'll get other people that are like, I really love this podcast, but I wish they'd stop talking about astrology. (laughs) And, and like, I get it. Like I understand why people are skeptical of it or don't quite understand it because I think there's a desire to see it as this like absolute science or something. But ultimately 
yeah, I, I agree. I think it's just, it's this tool that can help you understand yourself and your life if you allow it to. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and again, if it doesn't work for you, don't do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't, but then don't send me a fucking DM and ask me to read your chart. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, spitballing ideas here just popped into my head. Would you be interested in at some point doing like a read the charts of famous artists type collab? Oh my god, I would love to do that. I on this on my podcast, I actually did Vincent Van Gogh's chart. So oh, I'm nice. out there doing the doing God's work too. <laughs> <laughs> We are lovers of Vincent, so like I would definitely be interested in hearing about that. I'll uh, put that idea away and and shoot you an email, and we can like work out some details. I would love that. That would be so much fun. Yeah, I totally agree. I would be very excited to do that. There are so many good Pisces artists. Yeah, like that. So that's something going back to what I said earlier, like I've been getting into my North Node because my North Node's in Pisces. And so like I've been Mm -hmm. getting really into just like Pisces energy and stuff because, you know, they say like if you want to move into your North Node more, you should like surround yourself with that kind of energy. And so like I... Yeah, I've been just looking a lot into Pisces energy and like, yeah, so many Pisces artists, but so many, speaking of your chart, like Pisces moon artists. I feel like that's such a placement for creativity. It is. It is such a place. I mean, Pisces is the such an interesting and and beautiful and complex energy. It's mm-hmm. it's the siren, you know, it's like the it's this ultimate sort of romantic creative spirit. Music is also very Mm -hmm. deeply associated with Pisces as well. But I would say that the art historian in you is the Libra aspect because Mm -hmm. Libra is the, the athlete of the Zodiac. You know, I would say that like Oscar Wilde is sort of the consummate Libra energy of like, I want everything to be beautiful. I am dandy. Yeah. I want to surround I myself. I love Oscar with- Wilde. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. He's, he's so much. Um, <laughs> but he, it's like that sort of Libra, the balance, the scales, the beauty of everything. That is very, that's like the art historian. That's the connoisseur. And that's like who sort of sees all of the refined details of art. So your Venus in Libra, I share that too. I actually really do see that a lot with people who appreciate art. But then to embed yourself in art, to enmesh yourself, to become one with it, that's Pisces. Nice. I like that. Yeah, actually, Ginny, one of our other hosts, she's like, her chart's mega Libra. She's a Libra sun, a Libra rising, and a Libra Venus. And that's also just like definitely a a way I would describe her. She's very just like aesthetic. And she, when we do like art historical work, I feel like she's such an important part of like the discussions we have because she just can pick out those little like aesthetic things that like some of us might be missing when we're trying to go like too deep into like the philosophical side of stuff. Like she always gets the she always gets the the aesthetic nuance of stuff in a very like real way. It's, it's just, she's like such a great example of Libra energy. <laughs> well, let's also not forget that Marie Kondo is herself a Libra. So even though it's very, one could sort of naively assign that to a Virgo sort of categorical systematized energy. No, it's the beauty. It's the art. It is like mm-hmm. the, it's, it's the, aesthetic of creating harmony it's not just about putting things in boxes it's like beauty in the detail exactly yeah for sure oh my god I feel like we could just talk for hours and hours but (laughs) but we should probably wrap things up at least for this episode maybe we'll do a follow-up soon (laughs) I'd love that do you have any other pieces of information you'd like to share about art and astrology or thoughts or anything at all No, I don't. I feel like we covered so much. I want to, I'll save it all for our next conversation. Perfect. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was super fun and 
Yeah, I I love this conversation lately with kind of the art history babes and the podcast and stuff. It, it's been a little more like work heavy and this conversation very much like just like opened up how fun it is to actually do this. So I really appreciate you being here and chatting with me about two of my favorite things, art and astrology. And yeah, I hope to to chat again soon. Yes, I would love that. That would be amazing. And all of our listeners, make sure to check out Aliza. Where can they find you? So on I'm Aliza Kelly, A-L-I-Z-A-K-E-L-L-Y on Instagram, on Twitter. You can email me at info at alizakelly.com. So that is, those are the two names to, to search. And then I have a podcast as well, and it's called Stars Like Us. Great. And we'll link all of that stuff in the show notes for y'all. But yeah, thanks again, Aliza. Happy new moon. We didn't even talk about that. Happy new moon. (laughs) Happy, happy new moon. (laughs) And yeah, thank you everyone for listening. Hope to talk again soon. Thank you. We are history, babe.